Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. If you like, you can take your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to continue on uh, with our... Uh, uh, well, I guess we'll say moving on through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this morning, uh, finishing up chapter 11 and talking once again a little bit here about the Lord's Supper and some of the meaning um, and purpose of that special time we share together. You know, you've probably heard the old saying that uh, actions speak louder than words, Right? Um, and that's kind of the idea behind the Lord's Supper again, is it's something that you and I get to do together to communicate something to one another and anybody else who's watching. And again, it becomes a very special uh, thing we share uh, with each other and with the Lord. And you're just never quite sure what it might be doing in somebody's heart. Um, uh, several years ago, uh, my oldest daughter, Chloe, uh, was sharing about how she trusted the Lord. And, and we, we were talking about what had happened and, and what it was is that morning at church we had had communion. And, and that seeing that, I think, started to spark some more thought about what, does Je- what has Jesus done for me and what is the meaning of it. And uh, so later that night, um, we had talked and prayed and, and she... She made the decision on her bed by herself to trust the Lord uh, several years ago. And I just think of that as, again, uh, just you see what this can be to people, what it can mean to people. Um, And you can go back and listen to the last time we were in 1 Corinthians on our podcast or grab a CD or something, but we talked about the origin and meaning of the Lord's Supper, where it came from, and and how it's a memorial. And today we push beyond that, though, that it's, it's not just those things. And we're going to talk about how it's a message or proclamation and how there's a communion with it. It's actually why we sometimes call it communion. So let's look here at our passage beginning in verse 26. We talked a little bit about 26 last time, but we're going to bring out some other thoughts here on verse 26 where Paul tells them that that what happens when they do this together. And he says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And we see that key word there, proclaim, or show forth. Uh, What we're doing communicates a message to anybody who may be watching. And we're going to break that down. So we've seen here, first of all, this is an opportunity for the church to communicate the Lord's death and victory over sin. It's just another way of telling anybody watching what we believe about Jesus Christ, what he means to us, what he's done for us. Now, as we've said before, again, the main uh, one of the things one of the main things that Paul says in this passage, this is a memorial of Jesus' death and victory over sin. It's a tangible celebration the Lord has given us to observe today, to continually reflect upon him. Uh, Again, it's something special meant to repeatedly focus our hearts on the Lord. And he says in verse 26, as often as you do it, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. 
And we see there the element of grace in this. This is not regulated rigidly. This is not here's when you do it, here's how often you do it. You know, and, and all these rules and regulations. It says, oft as you do it, there's the grace in this. He leaves it up to the church, to the people. Hey, let's, this would be a good opportunity to do this. So there's the grace in it. <clears throat> um, and then he says, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So there, there is where we're getting into the main thrust of this uh, part of what we're talking about now. That this, this becomes a powerful statement that the church makes to itself and to anyone else who may be present. It becomes a message that is both word and action. And in that sense, it becomes evangelistic. It becomes a way to show what we're really about. We might say it's a declaration of where we stand with the Lord. That's what the Lord's Supper is when we observe it together. So it's a memorial and it's a message to anyone who's around. Now, you know, right now, you know, Pastor Lynn was talking about VBS and uh, the preparations we're doing in the Sunday school classrooms. And, and let me tell you, there's been a lot of time put into VBS already, and we've still got a lot we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks um, getting ready. But, but so much of what's going on is to create these visual and tangible vehicles that we're going to use to communicate the truth about Jesus Christ. You see behind me now, we've got our zip line. No, it's not a zip line, but we're going to be hanging backdrops, and there's things that's going to be changing up here. You, you see, it looks like we're celebrating Christmas in July up here with all the pine trees, but no, we're setting up because our theme is, is a railway theme. It's kind of like you know Rocky Mountain uh, uh, environment. And so we're doing all this work. We're setting, we're decorating, we're, we're creating a visual experience for when the kids come. Because when these kids come, we're not just going to sit them down in the pew and say, hey, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, tell your parents you had a great time, we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> you would think, like, this doesn't sound like much of VBS, does it? And we know we're teaching children, uh, but we realize how powerful it is when you put in the time to, to create an environment, something that's memorable, something that's special, something they won't soon forget. We hear about kids talking about what we did two years ago when we did the Rome theme. It's been two years already, and people are still talking about it. Some of those kids are still uh, talking about that. So we do all that for VBS because we're trying to communicate a message with words and action and things they can see and help bring that truth home to their heart. And that's exactly what the Lord's Supper is. It's that time where that truth can maybe take on special meaning for that individual that's sitting there, like it apparently did with my daughter that day, and it affected the heart, and something came of that. The Lord used that. And that's how he wants to use the Lord's Supper. Another opportunity to communicate the Lord's death and victory over sin, a way that you won't soon forget. <clears throat> now, that's kind of how we do it collectively. We come together, we collectively do it. But there's also kind of something else going on when you as an individual partake of the Lord's Supper. And that is, 
this becomes an opportunity for the believer to display communion with Christ. In other words, it's a time for you to say, this is who I trust, this is where I stand with the Lord. Each individual is making that communication, aren't they? That I am with him. I am his, he is mine. And the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for you to show that forth, to proclaim that to anyone who may be watching, who may be there. Now, that leads me to to get into a little bit of a side discussion here for a minute um, uh, regarding another topic we talk about in 1 Corinthians, and that's the topic of of water baptism. We've talked about that in the past, and water baptism uh, had been something that God created and gave to the nation of Israel as an opportunity for them to show they were obeying the Lord. They had all kinds of various washings in the Old Testament that Hebrews tells us about, all these activities and things they did. And every time they did something, they were basically making a statement. And with, with baptism, with the, with, with the idea of cleanliness, there was an idea of a symbolic cleansing before the Lord. I am clean before him. I am obeying him. I am walking with him. I'm going through uh, with the proper sacrifices. And, and, and observing the law and all these things that were for Israel and the baptism was part of that and, and, and so it had, a, it had a component to it where it was a, an opportunity for those Jewish people to say I am with the Lord and that's what you see in the gospel records when John the Baptist came and then Jesus and his disciples and even after that at Pentecost when there was an opportunity for those people if they wanted to be identified with Jesus Christ and identified with his kingdom and identified with all the hopes, dreams, and destiny of the nation of Israel. Water baptism was a part of that. As we come forward into the dispensation of grace and what God's doing today in the world, we we see earlier in this epistle where Paul says in chapter 1, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should become of no effect. Back in 1 Corinthians 1.17. And we start to see an, a shift in emphasis with Paul. We, we're shift, we shift away from the water to a greater reality, right? Turn with me over one, one chapter into chapter 12 of the very same book of 1 Corinthians. And look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says... For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. That's a passage that deserves think, thought, and reflection. To, to look what, what has God done. What, what happens the moment a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior? The Holy Spirit comes into their heart and seals them, indwells them, lives in them forever. There is a spiritual baptism that takes place. The Spirit comes into our life, our hearts, and now we are forever identified with Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Lord, our God, our King. That verse says, by the Spirit we are baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit puts us into the body of Christ. God's called out people today, the church. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what's in your past. 
everybody comes together and there's one body. And hold on to that idea of one body because it's so central to the Lord's Supper. But we see in, in even this very epistle, the idea, don't get caught up in the water. Look at what the Spirit has done. Look at what God has made you the moment you've trusted Christ. And there's an emphasis and a shift in Paul's epistles away from the water ceremony that came from Israel to the greater reality of what the Spirit's done, of what God has made us. Now, I say all that because water baptism is still, in a lot of people's mind and hearts, an opportunity for them to make a statement to their church, their family, their friends. It's an opportunity. Uh, It's often been called an uh, outward work of an, or excuse me, an outward expression of an inward work and things down that line. Um, but that's not exactly what we see in, in the epistles of Paul. But a lot of people, they, um, water baptism becomes, uh, can become a point of contention. And then what happens is even as people go from church to church, sometimes there's even the hurdle of like, well, you need to do it the way we do it. If it's a different denomination, if it's a different uh, viewpoint of scripture and so baptism can become muddled in people's minds um, but anyway what I want to say is this what the significance that a lot of people ascribe to water baptism which is sort of a, a one and done practice that people do right it's kind of one and done what for that becomes for a lot of people is a very a very memorable thing that they did for the Lord And it has a very, I don't know, a very strong connection, a very strong memory for them. May I suggest that that kind of meaning and really belongs more with the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is something that you do repeatedly, over and over again. It's a statement you get to make once, twice, three times, four times, all through your life. You get an opportunity with your body of believers to come together and each individual says to the Lord, we're here for him. And it's supposed to be memorable, it's supposed to be special. And I think sometimes the specialness that is ascribed to the Lord's Supper gets kind of moved over to the idea of water baptism, which is one and done, and, 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 and people, um, well, it can, become, it can become a point of contention and division and so forth on how it was done and so forth. What we see is, no, it's spirit baptism. That's the important thing today. But God still gives us the Lord's Supper. He still gives us this one thing, this one memorial that we get to do collectively together to encourage our own hearts and maybe encourage those in our own presence when we do that. So I see a specialness to it. And, and I personally think that the first time somebody does the Lord's Supper, that, may be, that could be looked back as a really special time for that individual. We know that, when it, that this is for believers. We're going to continue to see that. It's for the body. It's not for those out the body. It's for those in the body of Christ. Okay? So it's a special time for the body to do it, and I think the first time somebody gets to do that, I think it's special for them. I've certainly seen that with my children. We, what we do, you may do it differently, but what we do is when we feel like they have trusted the Lord and they understand kind of what it's about, we open the door. Okay, if you want to do it, you can do it. If, you're, if you belong to the Lord, then this is for you. <clears throat> and I think it, becomes, it takes on sort of a special meaning the first time they're able to do it. But again, we do it over and over and over and over again. 
And, and really, shouldn't that be, if we're going to call, and I don't like the phrase, so don't get me wrong here, but if you're ever going to say anything is an outward expression of an inward work, wouldn't that fit better with that because it's something you do over and over and over and over again? Now, don't get me wrong. The Lord's Supper, again, it doesn't, we've said this before, it doesn't communicate anything special to you when you do it. It doesn't give you grace. It's not a sacrament. We've talked about that. It's a memorial. But it's an opportunity to proclaim this message of who Jesus Christ is to me, to my church, to one another. It's a statement. And uh, I just throw that out to, to suggest to you that maybe the Lord's Supper is, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe it's even more special than sometimes we give it credit for. Not that it communicates anything religiously or spiritually, but because of it's just a reminder, this vivid reminder of, of what the Lord has done. You know, a lot of us, we like to wear T-shirts, right? You guys probably, everybody probably has their favorite T-shirts. Um, you may have a T-shirt that has your favorite basketball team on it. Was anybody wearing a Milwaukee Bucks T-shirt recently? Just asking. <laughs> I don't even own one. <laughs> Pastor Lynn raised his hand. He doesn't even know what a Milwaukee Buck is. <laughs> Who thinks talking about hunting? No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but we all have our T-shirts that we wear. We, you may have a T-shirt. You may have a church T-shirt, right? Falls Bible uh, T-shirt. You maybe have one of those. Uh, you may have a T-shirt with your place of employment. We, we see lots of Brian Bible Institute T-shirts out there that have, have been disseminated <laughs> over the years. You know, we'll, we'll be seeing pictures of missionaries in other countries that are wearing a BBI shirt. So we like those pictures. <laughs> That's my picture we like. No, when you see a BBI shirt, we like it. <clears throat> but when you wear a T-shirt, you know, it's a message, right? It's like you're wearing like a little billboard, if you will. And, you know... There's probably some T-shirts you wouldn't wear because of the message on it or what it would communicate to people. But a T-shirt is a simple way that uh, people use a visual thing to just kind of make a little proclamation that, hey, I like this team. Hey, this is where I go to church. Hey, this is, where I, this is something I like, right? It's just a little simple thing we do in our culture. Well, I think, again, that's, that's basically what the Lord's Supper is. It's a time you get to make that statement again. It's like putting on that favorite T-shirt again and saying, you know what? I love Jesus Christ, he loves me, and this little meal we partake together, that's what it's communicating. So it is a proclamation of what Jesus has done and what it means to me. Now we go on into the rest of the passage here. And I want you to see, as we go through 27 through 34, that the main idea is communion. The main idea is communion, togetherness. It's this, this is the idea of the one body of Christ, one church. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the body. Right. We saw that over in chapter 12. And therefore, because we are one, the way we act should reflect that. That's the simple takeaway from this passage. Um. I could summarize these remaining passages by saying, if the Lord's Supper is about communicating what Jesus did for us, then let's do it in a way that honors one another, that shows that we actually care about each other. Okay? Because again, where the Corinthians were failing with this issue, it was becoming a drunken kind of a feast. 
And maybe you remember us talking about that. Some people were bringing their own food and eating it, not sharing it with anybody. Other people were getting drunk. Some people didn't have anything to eat. And then they would say, this is the Lord's Supper. And he's like, don't you call that the Lord's Supper? That's nonsense. And here this comes back to the forefront as Paul gives them some ideas. You need to watch what you're doing in this. You need to take a hard look at how you're treating your brothers and sisters in Christ on this issue. And he's been doing this through the epistle. There's a lot of correction here as we've talked. There's a lot of things he had to unpack and explain and say, that's not Jesus Christ in that. That's not what he's asking you to do. That's not what he's calling you to do. And so it's over and over again. And here it comes back to the Lord's Supper. So he says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. And we'll stop there and make some points here. So again, we're looking at, this is a communion of believers. And here it's simple. I mean, we don't have to go far to get this point. But we're called to observe the Lord's Supper in a spirit of love and fellowship. Simple, right? You would think it goes without saying. (laughs) But it didn't go without saying because of what was happening there. So he's correcting their observance. They were using it as another time to mistreat the people who were in the body of Christ with them. The one body idea. They were throwing it to the side. Even when they said, we're doing the Lord's Supper here. They were doing it with complete disregard to the brothers and sisters in Christ. Look back over in chapter 10 for a moment, 1 Corinthians, and let's, let's see this a little bit more clearly. Something Paul says earlier, and in, in when he was still, he was kind of setting the stage of the Lord's Supper and, and making some connections back in chapter 10. If we look at verses 16 and 17, it says, The cup of blessing which we bless, it is, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So you see what he's saying, the, the bread... And the, the wine, uh, it's connected to the body and blood of Christ. And when you partake of this, you're saying, I partake of that. I partake of his body and blood. That's what I trust in. He's my Savior. But he goes on in verse 17 and he says, For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. See, the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a, a memorial that you and I are in the body together. Everybody that's taking it with you, we we are on the same team. We are one in the body. The Corinthians were totally forgetting that. That's why what they were doing could never have been called the Lord's Supper because they weren't focused on the body of Christ. They weren't loving each other even in this time together. All right, now let's talk about here. So the language is... Judgment, right? It's interesting. We're going to talk about that quite a bit here in the remainder of our time. The judgment, the chastisement, and so forth that was going on here in Corinth. We want to see that what was happening was happening because of they were not respecting we are one body. That's, that's the why, okay? 
But he starts talking about people doing this in an unworthy manner. And, and that's a point of confusion for a lot of people. What does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? And if you read commentaries and if you study church history, you will see all kinds of things suggested in that. Now, I'll just say this. What I'm trying to do in the passage is what's the simplest explanation? What's the simplest thing in context of what it means to partake in an unworthy manner? What I see is what he's saying, the unworthy manner, was simply what they were doing when they were doing the Lord's Supper. What were they doing? Some were getting drunk. Some were not sharing. Some were over here with nothing to eat. That's unworthy of the Lord's Supper, right? That's simple. It's just you're doing it, you're doing it in a very poor way. All right, so you go into verse 28. He says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so here's the examination. What are we examining then in the context? Basically, it's simple. Are we partaking of the Lord's Supper in a way that is honoring the Lord's Supper and honoring my brethren in Christ? You know, it's, it's uh, listen here, I'm not saying that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're not reflecting on your walk with the Lord, you're not thinking back on all that Jesus has done in your life. But the primary meaning of the passage is, look at what you're doing and evaluate. Are we doing this the way that God wants us to do it? And, and there's principles here that, that really would go to any part of the Christian life, right? Um, you could, we could be having a church service here, right? And we could be doing something in a way that is totally dishonoring to the Lord. You know, somebody could be up here preaching and cussing and doing all kinds of things that would just be turning people away. And he could say, I'm preaching the word. And you would say, not in a worthy manner. <laughs> You're just throwing people away. Well, that's what's going on here. When they, they, this was meant to be a special thing, and because of how, how they were doing it, it wasn't worthy of Jesus Christ and what he had called them to. It wasn't worthy of the reality that they were one body and they had communion together in the body and blood of Christ. So he says, you yourself, look at what you're doing when you, and you stamp the name Lord's Supper on this. Look at what you're doing. Is that really what this is about? It said in verse 29, whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now that ties into what he's going to say in a minute about chastisement. These people, because of the choice they were making, because they were not caring for each other as came out in their observance of the Lord's Supper, there was some judgment that had come into their congregation. So eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is doing it, but doing it in a way that is contradictory to what it is. They were contradicting the message with their actions. As we said earlier, actions speak louder than words. They were contradicting the message with their actions, and that's the unworthy way to do it. This is not, this is not a focus on a person's personal worthiness. Nobody's worthy. Let's just get that out of the way right away. Nobody's worthy. Jesus loves you anyway. He died for you anyway. And if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, my opinion is you ought to be doing this. 
with your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it's about, it's again, it's a memorial of what he did. Not you, but what he did. It's a memorial of him. So we're all unworthy. This examination, this unworthiness is talking about their actions when they were in the Lord's Supper. They needed to take a hard look. They needed to deal with things in their life. Otherwise, God had to deal with things in their life, which we'll see in a moment. Now, we've been working, I mentioned earlier, we've been working on VBS, right? And, and, and people have been here at different times, and uh, we're trying to stay coordinated. We're trying to work together, but everybody's got different schedules, and so not everybody's here at the same time. And, uh, for example, we came down uh, Friday for a, a few hours to, to work on one of the Sunday school rooms, and, you know, we had our plans, and we came down, and we started decorating the rooms, and we kind of had to tweak our plans a little bit in the moment. Okay, this isn't working how I hoped, and so... And um, so I start looking around. What, what else could we maybe use that's already here? I knew there was some stuff from last year, and there's some decorations and such. And so we started kind of brainstorming, hey, would this work? Would that work? Um, but what we did was, when we had an idea, I'd get my phone, and I would text Pastor Lynn and say, hey, is it okay if we use this paper? Is anybody else using this paper? You know, is this for something else? I don't want to use it if somebody else is using it. I don't want to, you know, I didn't want to walk in and just start taking somebody else's supplies and go decorate my room, right? You might come and say, hey, your room looks really good, but you did it in an unworthy manner. <laughs> we may have to take that down because somebody else need that paper you stole. No, I was talking to Pastor Lynn because he's coordinating, so, okay, I want to make sure. I let him know, hey, I found some baskets in the storeroom. They're sitting out. We're going to use some of those, so just let you know, you know, let him coordinate. What is that? I'm not bragging about me. It's just, it's, just, it's just consideration. It's just courtesy of other members in the body of Christ that what I'm doing doesn't take precedent over everything else going on. <laughs> I'm not the only person here. It's not about me. This, like, that's the Lord's Supper here. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about their food they were bringing or wine. It was about something they could share, they could partner in. They could celebrate the Lord together. And that's just consideration for the body. The last thing he says in verse 29, they weren't discerning the body. There's difference of opinion on that phrase, but I think he's talking about the body of Christ, the church. In, in partaking of the, the body and blood through the bread and the wine, they were not discerning the one body, the church. And that was their biggest problem in this whole passage. They weren't discerning or considering or showing courtesy or care, or love, or respect to the other people in the body. And again, I don't care what you pick. If you do it without that, without consideration for one another, another, I can just about guarantee you that God would say, that is not a worthy manner to go about your business. Now, let's move on in the last few verses here. Verse 31, or verse 30, excuse me. He's talked about, you do it in an unworthy way. You're you're kind of throwing each other under the bus in this, not taking care of each other. It's it's very observable that they're doing this poorly. And then verse 30, he says, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And we'll leave verses 33 and 34. Here he gets into the the chastening of the Lord and what's going on with them. 
And I'll make this point. We are called to deal with sin so it does not interfere with our fellowship. That's at least one of the reasons. It's not the only reason. But here in this context, he's saying you need to examine yourself. You need to look at this. This sin, and it's a specific sin of just total disregard for one another in this supper. If you don't deal with this sin, it's going to hurt your fellowship. That's exactly what was going on in Corinth. They were divided into factions. They were showing so little care for one another. And I believe, this is, and this, and you'll see difference of opinion, but I believe what's happening here is because they wouldn't deal with their sin in this, that God stepped in. That God stepped in. And I believe, personally, that the, the weak and the sickness and the sleep, in this scenario, was something the Lord had brought in. <clears throat> now, one of the things that's going on when we're in this uh, time in Scripture is that um, God was establishing grace. He had sent Paul out with the gospel, the grace of God, going to Gentile nations and places. And, and, and Paul and the men that went with him were sometimes endowed with the ability to do miracles. They could speak in tongues at times. healed people. He casted out demons at times. He raised some people from the dead. He could prophesy. He even at one point blinded an individual. As a, as a chastening from the Lord on that individual. And you say, well, why was all that going on? Because God was establishing something new. Wheels were in motion. As you read back in the book of Acts, wheels are in motion. We're moving from Israel to the world. We're moving from law to grace. And Paul is sent out, and, and these things that they could do were evidence that the Spirit of God was with them. When Paul could heal and, and raise people from the dead, nobody could argue that this guy is not speaking for the Lord, right? It authenticated the messenger so that his message would be believed. And Paul says, and this is spoiler alert where we're going next week, we're going to start talking about the spiritual gifts. Paul says in chapter 13, tongues will cease, prophecies will, will, will stop, I'm butchering the verse now, <laughs> and uh, knowledge will vanish. And he's, he's basically saying, over time, these miracles are not going to continue. Tongues and miracles and, and all this stuff is not going to continue. The Spirit's work in your life will continue. God's going to, con you know, he's going to continue to work in your heart. But these signs and wonders and miracles were going to pass away. That comes out in the next couple of chapters. But when we're still reading this epistle, that's all in play. God is establishing a new dispensation of grace. He's establishing his new spokesman of grace, Paul and his companions. So when Paul could, went to a place like Corinth, nobody could argue that he wasn't speaking for God. Whether he saw Jews or Gentiles, nobody could argue. I mean, they could argue, but not legitimately, because he could do things they could never hope to do. So he's speaking for God. So what he says, you better listen. Right? So at the time that this letter is written... There's all these signs and wonders as God is showing the world and he is showing Israel, I have a new people. It's the body of Christ. And it could be Jew, it could be Gentile, it could be barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, as we read earlier. But God was proving to anybody watching back then, this is my people now, the body of Christ. 
I am not working with Israel anymore right now. So there was all these very observable, supernatural activities that served as a sign that this was what God's doing now. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. And this epistle is going to deal with it. Now you come into this chastening. We're going to separate the, the fact that God chastens from what's happening in this passage. There's, there's God chastens, period. Interdispensationally. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But here, the method of chasing it, I think, was specific to this people because of the time they lived in. People, okay, think about this. People were eating the Lord's Supper, and they were doing it in a very selfish, self-centered way, right? And what happened? People died. People got sick. Um, people were weak, diseased. That, to me, speaks more than just natural consequences. I think God supernaturally let some things come in here. Because just as he was very observably and supernaturally blessing them with gifts and abilities that other people couldn't do to establish what he was doing today, just as he was doing all that, I think he also had the responsibility in a sense to publicly correct them in a observable and in a way that they knew it was him. That's my opinion on what's happening here. Because of where the Corinthians were in the time of what God was doing, this chastening took on this shape because it told anybody watching, not only is God going to bless these people, he's also going to step in and deal with their sin. Because what would have happened otherwise is all the Jewish people who are being invited to join this group, right, and follow Christ, they're being invited into this. They may see the signs and wonders and the tongues and miracles, but then they see all this sin and nonsense. They wouldn't want any part of that, would they? So God was correcting the church so it would continue to be a light to those people around. It's interesting to note that the Corinthian church was right next door to the synagogue where all the Jews congregated. And some of the people that were in the synagogue had joined the church right next door, including some of the synagogue leaders. <clears throat> so God was doing this great work. But the Corinthians were self-sabotaging this, and God steps in and says, we're not going to continue on this way. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. And we're in the midst of, we need to establish that I'm doing this. And so if they see my hand on the, the blessing, they're going to see my hand on the chastening here. That's why I think it took this shape. Now, let me say this, though. Some would use that to get rid of all chastening today. Say, that passed away just like t uh, uh, tongues and signs and miracles. That all passed away. That God doesn't, I don't know how people would describe it. God hits autopilot or whatever. Or, or God deals with us in only a, kind of a one-dimensional way. <clears throat> No, I don't, I don't think so, because there's too many other scriptures that point to the fact that God intervenes in our lives at times. The word for chastening in uh, verse 32 is the Greek verb that means to train a child. Train a child. Paiduo. It comes from the noun pais, which means small child. Paiduo, train a child. The, the Lord trains his children. That's all that this passage is talking about. In this case, they needed this strong hand, if you will, to steer them back to where God wanted them because of what's happening. There was so many things. It was a unique time. That's what I wanted you to get from the last thing we were talking about. This is a unique time. You know, this is why you don't hear. Let me tell you today, people partake of the Lord's Supper. I can guarantee you somewhere someone's doing it in a wrong way 
But you don't hear about him dying, getting sober, and you'd hear about that probably. Because I don't think he's, he's intervening quite to that point. But I think he is intervening in the lives of his children. He's still training. He's still instructing. He's still growing them. And let me just share a, a, a verse that, you know, it may be near and dear to your heart, but Titus 2.12. Uh, Paul says in verse 11 that grace, the grace has appeared to all men. And you know what he says about grace in verse 12? I'm going to read it to you. The grace of God is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That word teaching in that verse, guess what word it is? The exact, the exact same word is chastening right here. He's training his children. He cares about you. He loves you too much to not do anything. So he'll come into your life. He'll let circumstances come in sometimes, get your attention. He'll let people come into your life sometimes, get your attention. He'll bring your brother or sister alongside you sometimes and say, hey, what's up? You need to examine yourself. (laughs) He'll use the Spirit. The Spirit of God will convict your heart. He'll use the Word of God. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, very, very well-known verses. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The whole idea here is that the Scripture works, it grows you, you become mature in the faith and in godliness, you become equipped, but the word... I believe it's the word for instruction in righteousness. Guess what? It's the noun form of that word, train a child. Now, I bring that out because sometimes in in grace, we focus on our position and our blessings and and how that God has made us sons and daughters of him, and he has blessed us with an unimaginable inheritance in Christ. Heaven is waiting on us. We are the sons of God. We have all kinds of blessing and spiritual privilege. But that's not the whole story. We have a position of, yes, a full-grown son with all this blessing. But we have a practice (laughs) of, I need some training (laughs) in my life. Right? It's not either or, it's and both. See, God, when he talks about our position and, and, and how he works in our life, he's looking at what is and what will be in the scripture. And we have to look at both. We know what we have that nobody can take away from us. We're seated with Christ in the heavens. But he's working on us now. He's training his children now. Very similar in a way a father would train his children. It's like Hebrews 12.6 says, for, when, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I think that's a transdispensational reality about who God is. He's a loving father. That's who he is, the father. And he wants to grow us. And that's what he's doing. You see, he's got this this blessing waiting, right? All the positional things that we hold. All this spiritual privilege and blessing and inheritance. And what he's doing now is working our lives so our life more and more matches that reality. But he is training. He is disciplining. He is at times chastening. That's all related. He cares too much to leave us to our own devices. So he will do those things. 
Now, that's why, now, hopefully I'll explain why I don't necessarily expect if you come in here one day and you take the communion out of my hand and drink it, I don't necessarily expect you to fall over dead, okay? Because <laughs> I don't think that's what, how God's going to chasten. But he may do something else, and he may get your attention another way. Let's, not, let's be careful not to put him in a box on some of that, too. See, again, the reality is, is that sin destroys lives and relationships. This epistle has shown that over and over again. The grace of God is not an excuse to just do whatever you want in sin. No, because that's damaging. That is hurtful. That destroys. It does not build up. And so the Lord, he lovingly intervenes, confronts us with our sin to move us back into his will. And I think that's what Paul says at the end of verse 32, that we may not be condemned with the world. He's moving us away from the world, the way the world thinks, the way the world acts, the way the world does things. He's always moving us away from that. Why? Because the world is condemned. The world is going to face judgment. He's, don't live like that. Don't live that way. Let's briefly spend a little time on the last couple of verses there, 33 and 34. His, his, his final thoughts on the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come to eat, wait for one another. See, there's your worthy manner that we were talking about. Uh, novel idea, wait <laughs> for each other, right? Just wait. That's courtesy. That's consideration. That's love. That's respect. Wait for each other. We're one body. It's about doing this together. So wait. Makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> and then in verse 34, 34, excuse me. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And I think what he's saying there, he's not saying don't do the Lord's Supper because he's already established that you wait for each other. What he's saying is, but if you're so hungry, you, you feel like you can't do that? If you're, you're so hungry, you're going to come to church and you're just going to need to dig into the, to the bread before everybody else gets there? He says, just take care of it at home. Eat something at home and then come, right? Does this kind of sound like a father talking to his toddler? You know, if you're hungry, eat, then go. You know, like, don't get in the car and tell me you're hungry. No, anyway, you know, we, anyway, this kind of the language is kind of funny to me. It seems so simple, but it has to be said. Because we want this to be a time we come together, we consider each other, we discern the body, we love each other, and that is something else we proclaim in the Lord's Supper. It is a communion of us. A sharing of us, a fellowship together that we have. So it's simple advice. And, and I'll just say this on the hunger issue, it's hard for us to understand first century life and times. You know, you and I, it's hard for me to believe that you and I have ever been so hungry that we would literally be tempted to like tear into the Lord's Supper, like come up here and open up the, 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 the dish and just start eating the, the, you know, we use the crackers, but whatever. I have a hard time believing that you would ever even be that hungry. You know, why? Because we live in America and there's food everywhere. There's food everywhere. We're not first century where if you didn't harvest your wheat a few months ago and you didn't, you know, get the, your, your uh, what's the, the, meal, the millstone called, I'm forgetting, you didn't grind up your seed and you didn't roll up your dough and you didn't bake it, you may not, you may be hungry <laughs> if you didn't do all that or you, otherwise you have to go to the marketplace and buy it. And then these people, we don't know where they live. The church, they meet at somebody's house or some place. They didn't get in their car or take the bus. They walked. They may have been walking miles to get there. 
So if they were coming from a poor family, didn't have a whole lot to eat anyway, and they're walking miles, when they got to, and after they sat and, and, we, and they shared and they were going to do the Lord's Supper, they may have really been hungry, more than you and I maybe can experience usually. So first century hunger, a little different category than 21st century American hunger, probably. You know, I won't put anybody in a box. <laughs> but probably, generally speaking, not too many of us are, are, are going to have that same level of hindrance in those things, right? We're not going to have to face that same scenario exactly. Anyway, simple advice. What's a worthy manner? Wait for each other. If you can't, take care of it at home, then come and what? Wait for each other. And he says, I will set in order when I come. As Pastor Lynn said, you know, it is kind of like, you know, it's like dad's on the phone and mom, or dad's on the phone with mom at home and the kids are acting up. Dad's like, you wait till I get home. <laughs> no, it's not quite like that. But he says, I got more to say about this. We're going to, deal, we're going to work through more things on the Lord's Supper, but he, he leaves it to when he gets there. We don't know what those things were, so we just have to leave it. But he was going to talk more about these things when he came. And then he moves on to a new subject in chapter 12. So again, we see here the issue dealing with sin. Dealing with sin. And let me just throw out verse 31. He says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not need to be judged. That's kind of a life principle. If, if you are sensitive to God's work in your life, and you... you Deal with the sin that comes up in your heart or the actions you may do when you get carried away or whatever happens. You're willing to go to the Lord and, and work through that with him? Then he doesn't have to step in, right? He doesn't have to do those things. That's kind of what that verse is saying. If you take care of it, I don't have to. I don't have to come in and, and get your attention. In any family, sin can and will wreak havoc. If some family members are in the habit of lying, trust is broken. If some are prone to use harsh words, discouragement comes. If some in the family steal from each other, there is no opportunity for sharing. Thus, in a family, sin must be confronted and chastisement administered in order to preserve the family and ensure it will reach its full potential. That is an exercise of love to bring blessing to the family. And it's the same in the church. This is what the church experiences as well. In the body, sin must be confronted and dealt with to preserve trust, encouragement, and harmony in the church that the church can be all that God intends. Let's pray. Father, just again, thank you for our time together in your word, and may it stir our hearts, and, and Lord, may it bring uh, examination in different areas of our life before you, Father. This is a passage really about just walking closely with you in our daily lives, that, that we, we live in a way that is worthy of you in different areas of our life. But Father, we just thank you for this memorial, the Lord's Supper you've given us as well, and uh, we'll look forward to the next time we participate in that, Lord, in, in a couple of months. But Father, we just again thank you for our time together, our worship, and we pray everything here has been glorifying to you and that each heart here is encouraged in who you are to them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, thank you, Pastor Kern.